Thank you very much for choosing to listen to this podcast. Off-piste meanderings based on a television series that revolves around a time-travelling police box and the people inside it. Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Jottings and doodles inspired by the travels and travails of Doctor Who. Written and presented by me, Toby Haydoke. This week's episode, The War Doctors. Never in the field of battle. Well, I'm very lucky. I've never been in the field of battle. I was timid enough in the playground. Something struck me recently when I was researching minor players, a lot of them doddery, white-haired old geezers, in the Quatermass serials for the book that I'm taking several hundred years to write. I didn't really care about these long-dead old guys, Many in one scene, some with no lines. And as I embarked upon my digging, I suspected there was little of interest to find out. It's not a book that needs, say, a long list of theatre credits. But find out I needed to, because that's how I'm made. And that's why the book has taken several hundred years, and will doubtless take several more, to complete. What I found out as I burnt the midnight oil trawling the archives humbled me, though. Fletcher Lightfoot, say, two Quatermass credits. Neither part has any lines at all. He just stands there, looking old. Well, turns out that when he wasn't quite so old, he fought at the Battle of Mons. 1,600 British killed, between two to 5,000 Germans. Whilst a lieutenant in the 3rd Norfolk Regiment, and he served throughout the war, rising to the rank of captain. Claude Bonser, no lines, sits there white-haired and old, just to the side of one scene, was a twice-decorated World War I veteran who served to the end of the conflict. Well, of course those rather frail gents would have been of an age to serve in the war to end all wars, that sadly didn't, and I was humbled to be reminded that a great many of them had fought with distinction in a period now very much associated with its pointless waste of life. Those who didn't live to become decrepit old thesps had their whole lives ahead of them, until some military genius decided that actually what they had ahead of them was machine-gun-filled enemy lines which they had to walk towards very slowly, and so thousands were mowed down in hails of hot, sharp metal on the verdant fields of France. Young men who witnessed things that I, who as a teenager wailed because my guinea pig died, could not even imagine. And then after the conflict were expected to live a normal life and, as the vast majority of them didn't, not talk about what they had seen, done and endured. It wasn't done. And so those slightly unimpressive old guys suddenly transformed for me into young fellows whose lives must, they just must, 
have irrevocably changed when they did whatever it is they did to win their medals of valour in the grimmest of battle environments. And it got me thinking, if we like old telly and films, then it's inevitable that a lot of those people who have entertained us took part in some terrifying situations and then went back to putting on tights and swords and shouting in the evening, not least our leading men. William Hartnell himself, whose career prior to the Doctor involved any number of grouchy sergeants at which he was deemed to be thoroughly convincing, had a more complex war record than his stalwart screen presence would give the impression he had had. Having hoped to serve with the RAF, he joined the Royal Armoured Corps, 22nd Dragoons, during World War II. He was very patriotic, but not a physically strong person and he suffered from a knotted stomach and irritable bowel syndrome, and was a nervous recruit who therefore hated the army. The last straws came when he had an outbreak of dermatitis and suffered a nervous breakdown. Thus, the man who'd spent much of his career playing tough military types was invalided out of the army after just 258 days. He was a good, clean, reliable and sober soldier, according to his discharge paperwork, but was deemed permanently unfit for service. A necessary reminder that the scars of wartime service are never just physical. Hartnell's successor, Patrick Troughton, served with distinction in the Navy, having enlisted for officer cadet training at HMS King Alfred in Hove, Sussex, having got good qualifications due to staying on at school, Mill Hill, at the insistence of his father, he was eligible to train as potential officer material. The 12-week training course prepared him for joining the rapidly expanding wartime fleet, and so acting sub-lieutenant Patrick George Troughton passed out with a first-class certificate having accrued 920 points out of a possible thousand. He served on a destroyer on the east coast, patrolling British waters, and after six months of pretty continuous duty, he was enlisted for Coastal Forces small craft training in 1942, with a further stint in anti-submarine training thereafter. In June 1942, he was posted to HMS Midge and served as a first lieutenant, patrolling shipping lanes, protecting cargo vessels and engaging German e-boats in battle. The MGB-603 on which he served was a flimsy craft, but nonetheless Troughton, like many of his fellows, craved engagement and action to relieve the boredom, war being an experience of extremes. One such entanglement with the enemy in 1943 resulted in Troughton being mentioned in dispatches for bravery under fire, and he received the Bronze Oak Leaf Medal. He rescued 19 survivors, but lost five of his own crew. Six others were injured, and a close friend was blinded. In 1944, he was given his own command, RML, that's Rescue Motor Launch, 514, and his work on that involved fishing men from both sides out of the cold sea whilst patrolling the coastal strip. He had a 14-man crew who looked up to him but were also amused by his chosen headwear. After much cajoling from his wife to get himself protection from the elements, he had co-opted a tea cosy to use as a hat, just in case anyone wasn't sure how much of the Second Doctor's eccentricity came from the man who played him. 
Although the vessel was heavily armed and was to engage the enemy at any opportunity, his ship's role was largely a humanitarian one, placing itself under flight paths in order to be best placed to position itself to rescue stricken airmen. He had married during the war, life was short and so opportunities were seized and served on his boat until the cessation of hostilities. His wife Margaret observed that both of them were changed people come VE Day. Both were hardened by war. Troughton wasn't the only doctor at sea, for also serving his country atop the waves was John Pertwee. Interestingly, he chose the sea because he confessed that he had had nightmares about hand-to-hand fighting and bayonets and of burning to death in a plane. So the only option, apart from conscientious objection, which, interestingly, he said, took the greatest courage of all, it was the Navy. Its appeal, if that's the word, was that he felt that the dispensing and receipt of death were less direct and more impersonal. Oh, and then, of course, there was the fact, he said, that all girls love a sailor. Ordinary seaman Pertwee PJX 178358 was stationed at Portsmouth Naval Barracks and then transferred to HMS Vincent in Gosport as a wireless operator and then on to HMS Collingwood in mid-1940 as a trainee telegraphist. Pertwee had several lucky escapes. One weekend on leave, he found himself in air raid wrought London. Exhorted to take shelter in the London underground, Pertwee did so, but after a while, a number of his mates decided to chance going home to see loved ones. Pertwee had a premonition of danger and elected to stay in the subterranean shelter. Wisely, too. He later learned that two of his companions were killed, not by enemy bombs, but by falling shrapnel from his own side's ak-ak guns. On the 29th of November 1940, Pertwee was assigned to one of the largest battle cruisers in the world, the HMS Hood. It was during this time that John got very drunk and acquired a green and scarlet cobra tattooed onto his forearm, which is so clearly visible as he ablutes in episode two of Spearhead from Space and when he wears a T-shirt in Doctor Who and the Silurians. In May 1941, John was made an officer cadet whilst at sea aboard the Hood and was promptly transferred. Very shortly afterwards, the Hood engaged the Bismarck and was sunk. 1,412 men were lost. Only three from the entire crew survived. Shortly after his return to Portsmouth, John was caught in a bomb attack and suffered a severe head injury. When he regained consciousness, he engaged in conversation with the man on the gurney next to him, only to discover that the man was dead. Indeed, everybody was, because John himself had been presumed dead and placed in the morgue. Once recovered, he became Sub-Lieutenant J.D.R. Pertwee RNVR Special Branch and was posted to HMS Valkyrie in the Isle of Man, before being drafted to the security staff of Naval Intelligence in Westminster, travelling around the country, lecturing the services on the importance of security and secrets. He also claimed in later interviews to have been involved in hush-hush work, attending meetings with Winston Churchill 
and acting as a Q-type figure, educating intelligence officers in how to use special gadgets, something that the Third Doctor would definitely have enjoyed. Another future Doctor Who actor who narrowly escaped the doomed descent of the HMS Hood was Richard Beale, a diminutive, stocky, salty and pugnacious character actor Beale was to become a fantastic servant to early Doctor Who, lending his deep baritone voice to the refusions in the Ark, playing Bat Masterson in The Gunfighters, voicing the hypnotic propaganda perpetrated by the Macra Terror, and playing the Minister of Ecology in The Green Death, getting an off-screen Prime Minister, called Jeremy, to deliver a vocal punt up the posterior to Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart. Beale perhaps best known for his short regular stint in EastEnders as Jackie Stone, was a great man of the sea, taking out his motorboat single-handedly until he turned 90. He bowed out of acting before he stopped sailing, aged a mere 85, having appeared in almost everything. Even during this downtime, however, he was still a dogged correspondent to programmes like Any Answers and a writer to local newspapers, and he wrote his memoirs about his World War II service, One Man's War, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2015, when he was just 95 years old and still as sharp as ever. Beale was commissioned into the Navy in 1940. He rose from being a rating to becoming commander of a coastal patrol craft. He served in Italy, Malta and in Greek and Croatian waters, taking part in battles and sweeping for mines. Beale served one night as a relief galley hand on the HMS Hood shortly before it was sunk, but had plenty of closer shaves as he ascended up the naval ladder, at one point being seriously injured and nearly blinded. On the 12th of June 1945, temporary Lieutenant Richard Henry Beale was mentioned in dispatches for distinguished services and His Majesty's high appreciation for this was mentioned in the London Gazette. Taking the gunfighters as an example, actually, Beale was just one serviceman among the cowboys. David Graham, Charlie the Barman, served in the Royal Air Force as a radar mechanic. John Alderson, Wyatt Earp, was a major in an artillery regiment for the British Army. And Reed de Ruin, Par Clanton, served in the headquarters staff of the American Marine Corps at the start of World War II. Anthony Jacobs, who played Doc Holliday, was originally enlisted into the Queen's Royal East Surrey Regiment and initially posted on the south coast. One of a little platoon of squaddies in a pillbox with very little in the way of weaponry, feeling like they were supposed to be alone in defending the entire country against invasion. He was then transferred to the Black Watch, an infantry battalion of the Royal Scottish Regiment, and fought on the outer edges of the conflict in El Alamein. He wasn't right at the heart of things, but he did see action, which, according to his son Martin, had a profound effect on him. But he was an actor at war, and Martin illustrated to me the unexpected advantages of the profession in such an arena. According to his son, Anthony, a very English intellectual public schoolboy, was supposed to be in charge of a small group of Glaswegians from the Gorbals. They were wary of him, and he was terrified of them. He wasn't particularly tough or physical, and it was hard for him to win their respect. But he had trained as an actor, and so on the boat over to Africa, he bought what would now be known as airport bonkbusters, 
basically potboiler romance thrillers about people in the city making a cool thou and getting up to all sorts of no good. So he started reading to the lads, quite a few of whom were unable to read themselves. Anthony, later very useful to BBC Radio because of his adept ability with voices, he was one of the early stars of the medium, soon had an avid and attentive audience and he worked his way through several books on the boat and in trucks going across the desert. He said that it was probably the only way he managed to get any respect from the men at all, by doing what he knew how to do best, acting. So there, just a smattering of war stories from one randomly elected Doctor Who story, which illustrates, I think, how many untold tales of conflict there were likely to be found backstage in a BBC studio in the 1960s. And I say backstage because some didn't get to tell their heroic feats on camera, even if they were involved in them. Peter Butterworth from The Time Meddler and The Daleks Master Plan, the meddling monk himself, must have thought he was in with a chance when back in civilian life he was asked to audition for the war film the Wooden Horse. The movie is based on a true-life escape in which a group of doughty British POWs dug a tunnel underneath the wooden horse they used for exercise. It was one of the war's most celebrated escapes and Butterworth had been an instrumental member of it. When he auditioned to essentially play himself, he was told he wouldn't be right for the movie as he was not, and I quote, convincingly heroic or athletic enough. Peter had served with the Royal Air Force, but was shot down over an occupied Dutch island in the summer of 1940. He was taken to a prison near Frankfurt, but with 17 colleagues. He spent six months digging a tunnel under a bed with soup spoons and finally escaped and travelled 27 miles on foot, only to be found in the woods by the Hitler Youth six weeks later. He always joked he'd never work with children after that but he generally did not talk about the war, and his own children never asked him about it. A very common set of circumstances, which will perhaps come as a shock to those of us existing in an age where it is not unusual for us to confront all of our sadnesses and afflictions and to share them publicly. Peter was transferred to Stalag Luft III in Poland, and that's where the wooden horse plan was hatched. Peter's job was to stand near the horse or vault over it in order to deflect suspicion from what was going on underneath, the digging of a tunnel. Later that year, he helped with the mass exodus that would come to be depicted in the film The Great Escape, in which 76 men famously got out through a tunnel. The film version of this daring venture features a few Who stars among the ranks. Ian Chesterton himself, William Russell, who, in real life, was a navigator and bomb aimer as a flight lieutenant in the RAF during the war, doesn't actually get out because the tunnel is rumbled just as it is his turn to go through it. Most touchingly, Angus Lenny from the Ice Warriors and Terror of the Zygons has a starring role as Archibald Ives, the Mole, Steve McQueen's diminutive partner in crime for whom confinement ultimately proves too much. Time Flight's Nigel Stock and Warriors of the Deep's Tom Adams both play characters involved in diversions, which, in real life, 
was Peter Butterworth's function during the escape planning, for he helped to organise distracting concert parties, including deliberately bad comedy routines designed to inspire boos which served to drown out the noise of the digging. But he didn't escape himself. One thing Butterworth did get out of his confinement, though, was that one of his fellow internees in Stalagluft was Talbot Rothwell, who became a lifelong friend and, indeed, Butterworth's best man, and who went on to write many of the carry-on films, films that Butterworth so excelled in. Nigel Stock, by the way, above mentioned, and also the annoying Professor Hater in Time Flight, was from a military family and himself served in the army from 1939 to 1941 with the London Irish Rifles and with the Assam Regiment Indian Army between 1941 and 1945 in Burma, China and India. He was honourably discharged with the rank of Major and was twice mentioned in dispatches. Nigel Stock also appeared in the classic war film The Dam Busters, alongside another Doctor Who and British war film veteran, Patrick Barr. Barr, Lunar Chief Hobson in the moon base, despite his prolific on-screen military service, he's in so many war films, was actually a conscientious objector during World War II. But as John Pertwee pointed out, it would be foolish to associate that with a lack of bravery. Whatever his reasons for not enlisting, he nonetheless put his life on the line closer to home by volunteering to aid people during the Blitz and then put himself into the battlefield as part of an ambulance unit in Africa. He even played a conscientious objector in a 1939 play, The Jealous God, which highlighted the country's treatment of its citizens who declined, for whatever reason, to partake in combat. By contrast, the lead in the Dambusters was Richard Todd, later Sanders in Kinder, who has the rare distinction of appearing in a war film in which somebody else plays him. In The Longest Day, which Patrick Barr is also in, that's how ubiquitous some of these guys were, Todd plays his own commanding officer. Todd had volunteered for service the day after World War II was declared and successfully deceived the election panel into thinking he was more eligible than he actually was but still had to press his case to be accepted into the army, doggedly writing to the war office several times. He trained as an officer at Sandhurst, but was delayed joining up when the building he was in was hit by a bomb and he was hospitalised so that he didn't pass out until 1941. The night he went out to celebrate this, his usual haunt was full, so he drank elsewhere. The Café de Paris... His original destination was bombed that night and 84 people inside it were killed. Todd eventually joined the Parachute Regiment, his record describing him as jumps well, cheerful, fine example to his men. Todd attended a meeting about the plans for D-Day, which he said was strangely reminiscent of the read-through for a new production at the Dundee Repertory Theatre where I'd been a hopeful thespian fledgling on the outbreak of the war. Having now gone through the script for D-Day, I'd been told the minor role I was to play, plus a couple of understudy parts. In the interim, I'd been subjected to a four-year rehearsal for the first big night. This time, there would be no prompter to get me out of trouble. 
His group were to hold a vital bridgehead that would secure the east flank of the entire invasion. During these events, Major John Howard played a leading role in the capture of the strategically vital bridge, and at one point, Todd and his commanding officer had a brief chinwag with Howard. In The Longest Day, Todd himself plays Howard, so restaged a fictionalised version of events that he himself took part in. And at one point, an officer comes to Howard and they exchange words. That officer is intended to represent Todd, and so the fictional Todd speaks to the real one for just a moment. In the film, Todd wore the very same beret he had worn on D-Day, though he changed the insignia to match what Howard, from a different unit, would have sported. Todd left the 7th Battalion of the 6th Airborne to join divisional headquarters for the remainder of the Normandy campaign. After the war, he accompanied the 6th Airborne to Palestine but was seriously injured in a road accident and was discharged in 1946. But he was to see plenty of action on film, including being Oscar-nominated for his role opposite Ronald Reagan in The Hasty Heart as a terminally ill soldier and playing the lead in the aforementioned The Dam Busters. At the end of that film, his character, the real-life flying ace Guy Gibson, turns down an offer to celebrate the success of the operation by saying that he has some letters to write. Those letters are, of course, to the next of kin of those who had been killed. Todd later revealed that he found this a very hard line to deliver as he had personal experience of writing such letters during the war. Another war hero in an unexpected corner of Doctor Who is the mysterious Dom Isigri from the Space Pirates, one of the few Doctor Who characters of whom we have no photographs nor moving footage. Played by a very famous actor of the time and major Laurence Olivier collaborator, Esmond Knight. Knight had been asked to play the lead role in the Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger propaganda film 49th Parallel, 1941, but Knight was required for the naval military training he had volunteered for and so had to demur. After completing his training, Lieutenant E.P. Knight was appointed as gunnery officer on the battleship HMS Prince of Wales. In 1941, the ship received orders to pursue the German battleship Bismarck and in the ensuing firefight, the Battle of Denmark Strait, Knight witnessed the sinking of the aforementioned HMS Hood, which both Richard Beale and John Pertwee had so recently departed from. It was to be one of the last things Knight would ever see properly. A shell fired by Bismarck either passed through the bridge of the Prince of Wales and did not explode, or it exploded near the ship. Either way, fragments from the ship's superstructure hit Knight in the face, blinding him. He completely lost one eye and the other was severely damaged. Totally blind, he vowed to resume his acting career despite his disability. He also took up his unfulfilled engagement with Powell and Pressburger, playing a villain in their later film, The Silver Fleet, and he dictated his autobiography, Seeking the Bubble. Its title is taken from Jacques' famous Seven Ages of Man speech in As You Like It. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honour, Sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble, reputation, even in the cannon's mouth. A series of operations under an illustrious eye surgeon restored some of Knight's sight in what was left of his remaining eye, 
and he resumed his career, which ended with his posthumous screen appearance in, appropriately, Fortunes of War in 1987. He, like Todd, also took part in a fictional portrayal of his own experiences, playing the captain of the HMS Prince of Wales, the ship on which he was injured, in the 1960 film Sink the Bismarck. Another sea hero found in an unlikely corner of the universe is bumbling piratical sidekick Lieutenant Brotterdack off of Meglos, that exquisite actor Frederick Treves. Cast against type in Doctor Who as a galumphing halfwit, he was more often found playing officers and the gentry. In 1942, he joined the Merchant Navy as a junior officer and served on an Allied convoy heading for Malta with vitally needed supplies. Most of the ships were destroyed by German bombers and submarines and when Treves' vessel was hit, he was blown across the deck. There were 19 survivors out of a crew of 109 and for his courage in saving an officer from drowning after jumping overboard, Treves was awarded the British Empire Medal. After the war, he wrote Operation Pedestal, a play about the incident that was eventually broadcast on BBC Radio in 1974. Another Doctor Who alumnus whose war service has been recorded is funny little Welsh character actor Talfrin Thomas, Mullins the Gittish Porter in Spearhead from Space and Dave the Lovely Miner in The Green Death. Talfrin, or Talf the Teeth as he was referred to by some colleagues, is best known to viewers as Tom Price in Survivors and Private Cheeseman in Dad's Army. In real life, he was a rear gunner on a Lancaster bomber and flew many bombing expeditions over Germany. On one training expedition, his aircraft crashed, and he was the lone survivor. Talfrin witnessed the cockpit go through the body of his navigator friend, and was so traumatised by this that he suffered a nervous breakdown and spent several months in a sanatorium. One of the most moving things that I personally ever witnessed during a DVD commentary session was an actor explaining that he had been a conscientious objector for post-war national service, partly because he was so moved by his grandmother's experience. She had four sons who served in World War I, and in a reverse of the Saving Private Ryan scenario, all of them survived the conflict. In a village where no family was untouched by sacrifice and tragedy, the guilt she felt that her full brood returned unscathed and her reaction to it moved this dignified old man, all those years later, talking about an event he had no direct involvement in himself, to genuine tears. It made talking about the benefits of pre-filming over VT and the pesky nature of acting opposite special effects seem rather trivial in comparison. Perhaps the most fascinating story of military endeavour I have heard via Doctor Who came from the actor John Moreno, who plays Dobson in episode two of The Ambassadors of Death. John, then Juan, despite his perfectly modulated and beautiful, clear English-speaking voice, has a physiognomy which many a 70s and 80s casting director would gleefully have described as perfect for shifty foreigner. This is because Juan John has French blood in him and was indeed born in France. Only when returning later on holiday did this ancestry cause real problems. Having filled out the registration form at his hotel, he later found his door kicked in by the military police. 
because his father had failed to fill out the requisite paperwork when baby John went to England, he still counted as a French citizen and so was considered a deserter from military service and was immediately bundled into a military prison before being co-opted into the French army and forced to serve in Algiers. During this deeply unpleasant conflict, replete with guerrilla warfare and Maquis-style fighting, Moreno was asked to act as liaison between his division and a visiting British naval vessel. The British were impressed with his language skills, and so he told his story. He was, to all intents and purposes, a Brit in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was invited aboard the British ship and was given permission to go by his French commanding officer on the understanding, giving his word as an English gentleman, that he would not desert. After his tour of the boat, the captain summoned him to his quarters. This is English soil, lad, he was told of the vessel. You stay here tonight, we set sail tomorrow, we take you home. No one will stop us. I'm afraid I gave my word as an English gentleman that I would not desert, Moreno told his potential adopter, who admired his principles and wished him luck as John departed to complete his tour of duty in an inhospitable environment, which to me highlights the value of interviewing people even if they only have a dozen lines in two scenes in one episode of one seven-part Doctor Who story. Now, I don't wish to be too biased towards the UK either. John Brandon, for example, brought authenticity to his role as the first victim of the Cybermen, the American sergeant in the Tenth Planet, because he, an American, had himself served his country in the US Marine Corps during the Korean War. Nor do I wish to undermine the role of women during conflicts and the dangers that they face and the service that they fulfil. Indeed, I have Director Paddy Russell's Women's Royal Naval Service papers. Young women like her were still volunteering to do their bit when she took a bit of time off the making of the Quatermass experiment in 1953 to serve her country. And the show itself has brilliantly depicted the horrors of those 20th century wars, as palatably as necessary for a children's tea time audience, of course, in The War Games, The Curse of Fenric, The Empty Child, and Victory of the Daleks, and, of course, Spyfall, Part 2, which turns this podcast series of observations on its head by having an actor depicting real people who partook in the conflict, notably war heroine Noor Inyat Khan, who survived the fictional episode and her encounter with the Doctor, but not, sadly, the real-life conflict. The Muslim woman dubbed Britain's unlikely spy was captured and executed in Dachau, and at the time of writing, this has just been honoured with a blue plaque by British Heritage, making her the first woman of Indian origin to be so honoured. Many viewers would not have heard of her before Spyfall, which demonstrates Doctor Who's continued role in informing and educating, as well as entertaining. So look, that was a scattergun and very selective set of anecdotes, and I haven't even got to the many behind-the-scenes people who served with distinction. Hopefully, though, that has acted as a reminder that many of the people who shaped our favourite programme back in the day fought for what they believed in, not with petitions or tweets or statements of outrage, but by enduring things that by today's standards beggar belief. 
They might not recognise much of the world we live in now, but they certainly helped to shape it, and without them, much of what we take for granted would never have existed. Lest we forget. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Indefinable Magic. This week's episode, The War Doctors, was written and presented by me, Toby Haydock. Richard Beale's book, One Man's War, is available from the usual retailers. The Longest Day is a terrific film which, if you haven't seen, you must and can be purchased on DVD and Blu-ray and has many hooers besides those mentioned, including Geoffrey Bailden, Harry Fowler, Simon Lack and Victor Madden filling the ranks. Oh, and you can hear John Moreno telling his own incredible story on my Who's Round podcast, which is available for free from Big Finish. Sincere thanks to Phil Newman and to Martin Jameson for their help with this episode. The music for Indefinable Magic has been specially composed by Dominic Glynn. Please rate these podcasts wherever you find them. It really does help. Thank you ever so much. Stay safe and well, and I'll speak to you again very soon. If you enjoy this podcast, you may wish to check out my other ones, Happy Times and Places, which is a positive commentary type thing, and Too Much Information, which is hardcore factoids, episode by episode. And if you would like to support these in these troubled and difficult times for artists, please go to my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke, or if you don't want to support monthly but make a one-off payment instead, go to Kofi, kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. Or do neither. It's up to you. I understand times are tough. Don't forget to subscribe to the official Toby Haydoke YouTube channel.